Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I am Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Uh, if you are just joining us, we are counting down the top 15 episodes of Game of Thrones leading up to the final season, season eight. We are going in chronological order, one through 14. And then our last episode out of order will be our sort of like the biggest episode of Game of Thrones. This is the one. We're holding it for the end. And that episode, that podcast episode is actually going to drop on the premiere date. So you're going to have a fun day with that. Um, but for right now, we are still in season six. We are here to talk about season six, episode five. The Door, written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by Jack Bender. Uh, before we, which makes of, a lot of sense, it really does, and we will we'll get, get into the sort of why that makes sense, yeah, later. Who Jack Bender is and why that's why that matters. Um, we are going to chat a little bit about the episode itself, and then we have an interview with Paul Fairfield, the sound designer on Game of Thrones, who makes all the noises you hear that related to dragons and White Walkers and has some great, great behind-the-scenes details from the show. But before we get into all of that, we just wanted to remind you that if you have not subscribed to Vanity Fair yet, um, this is something you're going to want to do before the Game of Thrones season starts. We've got a lot of great Game of Thrones content uh, for your reading pleasure throughout the Game of Thrones season. You are not going to want to miss all the explanations we have all of the analysis we have. You're going to really want to read that. You can go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones, enter promo code Thrones, and you can get a whole year of Vanity Fair. That's magazine and digital, or just digital only if you don't want the magazine. $7.50. And something I forgot to mention the last couple times, 
uh, is the amazing tote bag that comes along with it. Richard, why should people uh, go take advantage of this promo code? Because Vanity Fair has been proven to be the best defense against armies of the undead. I've heard that if, like, like let's say you need to prop open some sort of, like, uh, you know, passageway with a thing on it, you could just, like, shove this... Uh, shove your Vanity Fair uh, in the door. It'll hold the door. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> that was a long road there. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah. Go to VanityFair.com/slash/thrones. Promo code Thrones. Uh, for all your door holding needs. Uh, and and subscribe. All right. So the first thing that we do anytime we talk about an episode of Game of Thrones on this rewatch podcast is I do. A recap of the episode. I have only given myself fifteen words. To recap the episode, so here it goes. Here is my 15 words or less recap of the door. Hodor. That's it. All right. That's my recap. Okay. Um, (laughs) Perfect. Simple. (laughs) Succinct. Yeah. Hodor. Uh, then we, then, then Richard and I do a thing where we pick our obvious MVP of the episode. Uh, I'm going to go with Hodor. What do you say, Richard? Hodor. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, then our sneaky MVP. Uh, it's a tough one, but I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go with Hodor. What do you say, Richard? Hodor. Oh, okay. Um, and then this, okay, this is my favorite part of what we do is like we do a quote from the episode, uh, in the style of, of the character of the episode. Uh, this is where we offend people with various accents, et cetera, et cetera. Um, here's my quote. It goes like this. Um, Hodor. Richard, what's your quote? All right, hold on. <clears throat> hold on. Um, <clears throat> Hodor. Right. Uh, and then we want to pick best dress. The person who just like looks the most stylish. I got to give it to Hodor. Richard, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, that's a good pick. Um, I think I'm going to go with, oh, um, what's his name? Oh, uh, Hodor. Okay, great. And then lastly, we want to, um, pick, uh, a person or an inanimate object or two people or two inanimate objects, something like that, that we ship that we want to have together. Um, I'm going to pick the, uh, divided psyche of Hodor. What do you, I want that thing to come together. Richard, what do you, what do you pick? I'm shipping holding with the door. <laughs> Great. All right. So, um, this episode's all about our, our dude Hodor. Um, obviously, uh, other things happen this episode and, and we will talk about it, but obviously the, the showstopper is this, uh, invasion of the three eyed Ravens cave. The last stand of a few figures like Leaf, R.I.P. Leaf, R.I.P. Three-Eyed Raven, R.I.P. Yeah. Summer the Direwolf. Um, yeah, we get the origin of the Night King in this episode, uh, made with a dragonglass dagger. Um, and, you know, basically, we. It, this is one of those rules episodes of Game of Thrones. And I really like those. There's a few of those, like Hard Home is a rules episode and Beyond the Wall from Season 7, which is like, the show has to teach you how the White Walkers work and like what weapons work against them and stuff like that. And so anyway, in this episode, we find out that if uh the Night King touches you in a vision or something... Uh, You're in trouble. Then, then he can cross the magical barriers that had hitherto held him, uh, at bay. And a lot of people think that this is why the Night King was able to take down the wall in season seven, not just because he had that, like, zombie dragon in season seven, but also because Bran crossed the wall and the mark that was on him meant that the magical barriers that kept certain people out weren't working anymore. Anyway, point being, Night King comes in to fuck some shit up, and then 
at the end of it all, Hodor dies in a very, in, in a very poignant way. Um, do you want to explain to our listeners, Richard, why the fact that this episode was directed by Jack Bender matters? Well, Jack Bender first came to my attention, I think, anyway, as a director of many episodes of Lost, mm-hmm. uh, a great sci-fi mystery show from the 2000s. Um, and something that that show did a lot very effectively was mixing um, an explanation of something of why something is with an emotional resonance, mm-hmm. a lot of time skipping a lot of like circular looping reveals, you know, and that's exactly what this whole Hodor thing is, you know, where we realize that the reason he's called something is because something from the future affected him. We see it played out with, you know, lovely, sad, soaring music playing while something violent is happening. So it's that kind of weird juxtaposition of emotional resonance and almost horror. Um, and I just feel like a, a lot of those things are just hallmarks of Lost. Um, and in a, in a way that when I first watched the episode, I felt this like tingle of like, oh, this is like what I felt like watching the best episodes of that other show that I loved. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's just, just south of manipulative. And I think it really, really works. I think it really lands. It almost doesn't, but I think it, it really, it, it hits it just right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the Jack Bender calling card. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. like, was I emotionally manipulated? I don't care. <laughs> um, the, the, the sort of the most famous Jack Bender episode of Lost and my favorite episode of Lost is called The Constant and, um, it involves a phone call sort of back and forth in time, kind of. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's just, it's really, um, really tremendously impactful. And, and like, you could just see that aesthetic just transplanted over to this final sequence with, with Hodor. Um, yeah. And, um, lost one of its hallmark visuals was camera overhead person lying on their back, staring up in sort of wonder, fear, uh, whatever. And that's exactly how this episode ends. And also how the last, shot of, of lost is i mean it, it ends you know the, the show opens with you know that and it ends with that so there's just a lot of lost in here which i yeah. you know i kind of kind of like when those things cross pollinate like that i never it never occurred to me that like that was a very much a jack from lost pose that hodor has mm-hmm. but of course it is you're what a good call um i talked to jack bender i interviewed jack bender for our website vanity fair when this episode happened and what was kind of interesting to me is like jack bender had like no interest in like game of thrones lore like i asked him questions about the die rolls he's like oh i don't know oh i don't know anyone's name there was just like someone there with a binder to tell me what everyone's name was and stuff like that like that's fine but what jack bender like did do and i believe it is just like sit right behind that camera communicate with christian narn as like he's dying and just like get this incredible performance and get these like emotions you know out of a character that only ever says one thing. And in this final moment, I don't think really says much at all. Um, he's just holding that door. Whew. Uh, it's a huge moment. Um, and so this is, this is also obviously, this is one of a few things that George R. R. Martin told Weiss and Benioff and, um, executive producer Brian Cogman. Um, like he told them a few things that he had planned. One was the burning of Shireen Baratheon. Uh, that happened in season five. And, uh, one was this Hodor story. Uh, and I really feel like you can feel the George R. R. Martin-ness 
of this, right? It's so complicated because it makes Bran, like, it's not just like Bran is the instrument of Hodor's destruction because he was negligent about the way in which he delved into the past and he allowed for the Night King to break in and Hodor sacrifices himself for Bran. It makes him an instrument in Hodor's death in a much more active way in the way that he, like, wargs into this character, something that a seed that was planted, you know, from season, I don't know, three, I think it is like way long ago that, that Bran could do this, that this is kind of an invasive thing that he does. And then these are the like extremely tragic consequences of it. Yeah. And you know, something I, I thought while rewatching this episode, which I've watched this episode a few times because I just do find that reveal so effective and, and familiar in a way um, is Okay, this is the moment where you're like, okay, this kid better be worth it. Mm. You know? Yeah. Like a lot of people have suffered for him in, in, in really terrible ways, both as we learn in present and past. Um, and so, you know, he better actually be the, the, this, this thing. I mean, clearly if the, if the Knights King is like interested in, in him, like clearly there is some significance to him. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that the show would just be like, no, he's just a kid. You know, that's obviously not what's happening, but like whatever role he's going to play in this kind of end game, um, you know, this is the episode where it's like, yeah, like he better earn it. You know? Um, I also think that like, you know, as much as I love this stuff with brand North of the wall, um, it, you know, you're talking about how it's a rules episode. I do have a question of like, okay, so he touched him in the flashback dream, whatever we want to call it thing. And that meant he could break the seal. The Knights King could break the magical, you know, cross the bit, the Rubicon or whatever. But like, how the hell did he get there so quickly? If he's been marching on the, on the, on, you know, the south of the wall for, for six seasons now, and it's, and it took him like 10 minutes to get over there. So I don't know. I, I just, I have a quick, maybe there's an answer to that that I don't know, but, um, well, that I did th- that. I think, well, I don't think it's supposed to be like, okay. So here's my understanding of events, right? Bran is having a vision of the army of the dead and the night king. Um, I don't know how far in the past it was. Maybe it was concurrent vision, right? Like maybe they're just over this hill and, um, and the night king touches him in that vision. And that's why he can, as you say, cross that Rubicon and then they attack the tree. What happens is Bran wakes up the three eyed ravens like, Oh, he touched you. Didn't you? Ah, you motherfucker. Like, (laughs) I've been waiting for you in this cave for thousands of years. And then you come here and you fuck it up. And, uh, you know, now we're going to get invaded and stuff like that. But, um, but basically they're packing. It takes a little while. Like, so what happens is Mira and Hodor are packing that sledge to get them out of there because the Thread Raven's kicking them out. But in the meantime, the Thread Raven's like, I got to download everything to you, Bran, before you go. So Bran is like plugged in and in the midst of like a complete download when they get attacked. That's my understanding of what's happening. Um, so we don't know exactly how much time passed between like him being marked by the Night King and, and the Night King invading. Um, that being said, I also think that the reason the Night King has been like marching around the North, um, is not because he like couldn't physically make it to the wall. But it's that he knew he couldn't cross the wall until some things happen. One of those things might be Bran has to get to the other side of the wall. The other thing is that he had to wait for a dragon to come to him. You know what I mean? Like, there are things he was waiting for 
before he crossed the wall. So it wasn't it like that okay. was that was obviously my complaint too for the first few seasons. I'm like, what is this guy doing? Just like tromping around. Like he seems like he wants to invade, but he's just sort of like bopping around, around up north. <laughs> what is he doing? And I yeah. think he was waiting for some some things that he needed to have in place. That's my that's my understanding anyway. Um but yeah, this is a you know, it's a big it's a big thing. A, a, a small a small moment in this episode that I really love. Uh, is when the three-eyed raven like dies and um you you got this sense and and you you know there's the three-eyed raven is like an impossibly old figure and so like he and the night king definitely have history not just because we saw like the children of the forest create the night king but just like the way the night king kills him do you know what i mean it's just sort of like this feels slightly personal like at long mm-hmm. last you know but then in the past the special, the CGI special effects of, of the, the three eyed raven just like dissolving into the air, like wisps of burnt paper sort of thing. I just think it's, it's a really like a visually dazzling moment of the episode. Yes. Well, it was reminiscent for me of two things. One is, um, some of the bad wizards apparating flying around in Harry Potter or particularly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also a little bit Madonna in the Frozen video. <laughs> Where she turns into crows. Yes. I mean, I was expecting him to turn into a bunch of ravens, but he just turned into burnt paper instead. It was pretty great. All right. Let's take a tour of some of the other things that happen in this episode because other things do. Um, and they're Can actually. Can I ask a- one more question about oh, this, course. about this world? Yeah, yeah. So the thing with the, the children creating the, the Knights King or, or the White Walkers in general. Yeah. If they were creating them to protect them from the Andals, the, the men, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of their fault, but also they had good reasons for doing it. Well, your mileage may vary for good, but like, you know, they, they created this, this thing as a method of defense and then they just, they goofed because they created a thing they couldn't control. Um, so my understanding is that the children of the forest shove this dragonglass shard into the night king, creating the night king. Um, and then, uh, who looks great, by the way, <laughs> when he was alive looked great. Um, mm-hmm. And then he turned a bunch of other people into White Walkers. And my understanding of the way that they're made is that it's those babies that he snatches and sort of touches with his icy claw. And then their right. eyes turn blue and sort of thing. We saw that happen. So then he makes the White Walkers and then all of them make the dead, the, um, the dead army. They, uh, they've raised the dead. So here we okay. go. Um, all right. So, uh, a few other things that happened this episode. This is, this is where we get this like Sansa, Baelish confrontation with Brienne there that I almost entirely love. I don't love like what I don't love in this season is like Baelish planting seeds of doubt about John and Sansa or like Baelish at all influencing Sansa to keep things from John. That stuff bothers me. But this like boss bitch confrontation. And I mean that in just like an entirely enthusiastically positive, supportive way uh, that Sansa's like, how dare you do this to me and then try to come talk to me like and and know you will confront what happened to me like he's so she's like what do you think ramsey did to me and he's so uncomfortable and she doesn't let him off the hook even like a centimeter it's i think it's really good and brand is just there just ready to chop him down uh well yeah and and like i think sophie turner is so good and i think she's probably the best of the kid actors I guess she's not a kid anymore. She's married to a Jonas brother, for heaven's sakes. Um, or engaged, engaged. one anyway. Engaged. Yeah. But, um, 
you know, Sansa's such an interesting character. She's always who I said was my favorite when I was reading the books, if anyone asked me, and I couldn't really pinpoint why. But I think you kind of see it in this scene is that, for better or worse, George R. R. Martin and then beyond that, Weiss and Benioff have created this world where there are powerful women, but a lot of them seem to be sort of outliers. Like you have to be the mother of dragons or you have to be a witch or you, ha- you know, like, like there aren't a lot of just women who would don't have those sort of extra ability or whatever who are in positions of power or authority or agency even. And we see a lot of women being horribly treated. We see a lot of rape, murder, abuse, all that kind of thing. And Sansa is one of those women. I mean, she, she, her narrative is about her sort of actualizing herself. Yes. But it's also about, I think how someone granted she has a lot more power than other people, other women in in this world do because of her, you know, her, her uh, family line, but, um, but also in some ways less, but, uh, you know, so I just think it's really interesting to watch a woman navigate this world. And in this scene or scenes like it, get a sort of moment of like, do you know what this has been like for me? Yeah. You know, and, 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 and just saying, you know, I know that you, you know, you, you talk slyly as if this is a game and everything, your piece is moving around the board. She's like, but like, we are affected by this in ways that like, I like when she says, you know, I can still feel it, not like in my like poor wounded heart, but like on my, in my body, I can still feel what he did to me, you know? Um, and I just think there's a real power to that. And we were talking in an episode or two ago about how this show doesn't really often have connections to like current, you know, sociopolitical discourse here and there a thing about shame or whatever might pop up and we're like, Oh, we could like, there's a think piece. Uh, but I feel like this is another example of, of, of a moment when, you know, Sansa kind of making Baelish stand there as she sort of, you know, in some ways lists the things that happened to her. Um, that feels very relevant to today too. And maybe I'm, I don't know, kind of overblowing it or mansplaining it or something, but like, it just felt, it feels like that's the power of Sansa right there. That, that there is this character at the center of the story. Yeah, no, I love that. I really, really love that. And like, the thing about Sansa is that, um, I don't think like, you know, um, we talk in the fandom, we talk about something called like George's children, which are the characters that he like cares the most about and that he sort of follows throughout the, uh, throughout his books or, or like he definitely, we definitely know he wants to like have them survive till the end game and stuff like that. And that is like Arya, John, Bran, Daenerys, Tyrion. I think that's it. Uh, I might have missed one, but I think that's it. Sansa's not one of them. She's like a disposable Stark to George. Not that he doesn't care about her, but like, like Rickon, she's not like one of the primary figures for him. Um, the show has never treated her that way though. You know what I mean? Like the, to, for, for better or for worse, the show moved her into the center of the plot just as George was like sort of exiling her to the area and like sort of moving her out of the plot. The show is like, okay, but we've got Sophie Turner and we really like Sansa and we don't want to just like sit out a season like they made Bran sit out a season, right? So like we will move her uh over to Winterfell. You can talk all day long about that choice and what that meant. But like what it meant is that they were like, please never mistake us. Sansa is very important to us, you know? Right. So I, I think that's, a, that's an yeah. interesting distinction between the, sh- the show and the books. Oh, for sure. And I also, I just want to re, you know, just like clarify that, like, I also am totally with the complaints about the way that Sansa is treated on the show in terms of like, Oh my God, there's so much brutality towards women, you know, all that. But I think that, you know, if that has to be in the show, which I don't know necessarily all of it had to be in there, um, 
at least there are scenes like this where there is an accounting of that, you know? Yeah. Um, it offers at least some sense of shape or balance to, to, to that litany of horrors that this character has been subjected to for like the past few seasons. So I don't know. I just really appreciate that scene. And I think that Turner, uh, it delivers it really well without doing it over the top, you know? Absolutely. And I think in a way yeah. it's more effective than when she, you know, lets Ramsey go to the dogs later, you know? I agree. I, I mean, I, I don't love that Ramsey dog scene, but, um, I understand that it was very like healing for some people. So, um, that, that was not my, my fave moment. This one is definitely a fave for me. Okay. Um, we've got Jorah revealing his grayscale to Daenerys and then leaving. I love this scene as a huge Jorah fan because like, I love the scene because it's Dario, Jorah, and Daenerys. And, Daenerys is like very emotional to find out that Jorah has grayscale. That plot eventually goes nowhere, which is a bit of a bummer, but like, uh, you know, completely Deus Ex Machina <laughs> with that shit. They're like, and it's cured. Never mind. Um, but like Danny, um, you know, says goodbye to Jorah in a way that like makes it very clear that she loves him, not in like the way that she eventually loves Jon Snow, not in the way that she loved Khal Drogo, but there is love between these two and you can just see Dario watching them do that and being like, oh, she doesn't give a shit about me. Like, like, it is mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. so clear to me. And I, like, I've always loved this Jorah Nera stuff because to me, not the book Jorah because he's creepy, but to me, this is an example of courtly love, which is just something I'm kind of interested in. Um, I don't think that Jorah has ever been like, petulant and shitty about the fact that Daenerys doesn't want to like ever have sex with him. Um, he's just sort of like, yeah, I get it. Um, but I'm here for you. And I don't know. I just, I really like yeah. that for some reason. No, totally. It's a, and it's a, it's well acted. Yeah. Um, by them. Um, and speaking of stuff in Marine, can we talk a little bit about how this red priestess Kinvara? Yeah. And how it's like, oh, so like we, I hear I was thinking Melisandre had her like whole style to herself. Mm-mm. <laughs> she was basically in her uniform because apparently, because <laughs> the other ones were in the exact same thing. I just don't think that's a really funny detail of like, oh no, they all dress like exactly the same and style their hair the same and look the same and like have the same makeup. <laughs> like, I know the like the bell sleeves on the red, like slightly <laughs> shiny robe with the like, yeah, the half up hair, Kinvara and then, um, we see one later in season six as well. Um, and they all, yeah, they all, <laughs> they're all pulled their, their look out of the same style book. It's absolutely true. Um, and then we also, um, we have this, uh, really, it's painful to watch now, uh, Queen's Moot thing. I know you already said that you don't like your own Greyjoy and that's fine, but like, it is so painful to watch this scene and watch, Yara Greyjoy, who has a claim to the throne, be like outstripped by this like uh, asshole buffoon, um, which was, you know, this, this, this was happening in the heat of the Clinton Trump election. Like there's just no, there's no way to avoid that reminder and that comparison of what happened. And not only is he, is he like doing that to her, he's saying he's going to do it by essentially, you know, betting Daenerys, you know, it, like, yeah. there's an extra component of like shitty male chauvinism there. Yeah. Um, and you know, maybe as part of the reason why I don't like Euron as a character, and I don't mean because he's a bad guy, I mean because I don't like the way he's drawn, I guess. But, um, but you know, I think that I think that Yara remains a compelling character, and uh, it's a good performance by uh the actress whose name I don't now I don't know, but um, what's her name? Oh, but Gemma Whelan is, is I think really good as Yara too. So yeah. Um. 
She's great. Um, the, and this is a great Alfie Allen scene. All scenes are great Alfie Allen scenes in my mind. Um, but this is a great, like, you know, Theon supporting Yara here. And then just oh, like totally. yeah. immediately being emasculated. <laughs> like, this is just mm-hmm. like two steps forward, three steps back, always with the Aunt Greyjoy. So, um, yeah. So there's that. And then, and then we've got like this other thing that is like fantastic in this episode, which is the whole players plot. Uh, in Bravo. So much. I had forgotten about it entirely. And then when I, when I was watching this episode again, I was like, oh, right. That's where Richard E. Grant was on the show. And, um, Essie Davis. uh, Essie Davis. Like it's just, and, and I love that it goes on and on and on. Like you see a lot of that play. Well, so that's what we're talking about. You know, when we were talking about, um, we were discussing home earlier in the season and we were like, okay, Game of Thrones has become just like stunts and wins and stuff like that. Yes and no. Like I think, I think the flashback stuff in season six and I think this play stuff is like, is a reminder of like the show just taking its time for something that like they really didn't need to do this. There's a functional reason to do this because it serves as like a recap of sorts for Game of Thrones. Like, uh, in case you forgot this, you know, previously on Game of Thrones, this is what happened. Of course, it's not an accurate retelling. It's like, what if we wrote this play, uh, via like Cersei propaganda, right? But like, it's still, I love that the show takes time to do this whole thing. And this isn't the last yeah. we see of it because we see a whole other like section of the play in a later episode. Oh, the player stuff is so good. So funny. It's rhyming. It's like, it's witty. Uh, they must have had so much fun writing it. Oh, it's just the best. Everyone's great in it. And then like Maisie Williams as Aria, like her face watching it, her like her entertainment turning to like frustration and despair and then later you know, we won't talk about this episode, so I'll just say it now. Like later when she goes back and watches, um, Lady Crane, who's played by Essie Davis as Cersei, like mourning Joffrey's death and, and Essie Davis just puts all this pepper on it. Mm-hmm. And Arya is like emotionally swept away by the process of watching it is, uh, it's just, it's like some high quality, high quality stuff from, Game yeah. Games. I think, and two things, two more things about it. I think one, there's a beautiful sense of callback of her watching it t- to um when she's watching Ned on the, the, yeah. the, at, the at at the you know before Baylor. his execution yeah, yeah, yeah. at Baylor you know I think that like and just like just kind of thinking about how much she's changed and how much has happened since she last in some senses observed some version of her father yeah um I think that's really interesting and also there's just a really weird gratuitous p- sh- penis shot. And it, having to do with the players that I, I had totally forgotten about. I was like, where? And it's like a joke about warts. And I was yeah. like, why is that in there? But okay. It's like from up, from below. Like it's a really, it's a really intense shot. And you're just like, okay. Yeah. That was, um, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, the things Jack Bender, I guess. No, I don't think he shot that stuff. Actually. I think the player stuff was shot by a different director, but, um, the, I, I don't know if that was an attempt of the show to try to balance the, nudity that was like a complaint a lot of people had it was like when we talked about nudity on game of thrones it wasn't just that there was so much nudity which of course there was it was like that was almost entirely female nudity so like where's where are the naked dudes and so like well as ian mcshane famously called the show tits and dragons right it's not dicks and dragons right and so um but so so dario naharis had to like pick up that (laughs) the burden of that a little bit we saw a lot of his like ass as a result but i felt like this was one of those things where like they show us um, like the naked upper half of the young woman who's playing Sansa 
And then we, in the same like sequence, get this like gratuitous penis shot. And it's just sort of like, there, fair and balanced. You're welcome. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there you go. This is, this is the door. Is there anything else uh, we want to say about this episode? Mm-hmm. Hodor. <laughs> Uh, quick shout out to Sam Coleman, who plays young Hodor, uh, who I think oh, does, yeah. does a great job. This is, this, he's a great kid. Um, I've met him a couple, I've been to this Game of Thrones convention called Con of Thrones a couple times, and he's been at both of them, and he's like, he's just like a really smart, fun, funny, cool kid. Uh, I'm really into him. So shout out to Sam Coleman for his performance in this episode. Stay tuned for our interview with Paul Fairfield and the reveal of what our next episode will be. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, hello, still watching listeners. In a tragic twist of George R. R. Martin-esque fate, this interview that I did with the amazing Game of Thrones sound designer Paula Fairfield in her beautiful studio that is beautifully soundproofed and has lovely acoustics somehow developed this weird hiss on the back of the track. So it only kicks in, it kicks in halfway through this interview, but Paula has such fascinating things to say that we decided to go ahead and keep the entire interview uh, in this episode. Anyway, we did our best to strip out the hiss. It's only noticeable and rough for like a little bit of the interview, but we left it in just because we didn't want you to miss out on any of Paula's insights. So here's an interview with sound designer, Paul Fairfield, that could, let's be honest, sound a little better. We are joined today by sound designer Paula Fairfield. Hello, Paula. Hi. We are in your studio yep. where the magic is made for Game of Thrones. And my dog Tazzy is walking around. He <laughs> Taz- insisted on being present. Tazzy is important to the sound design process, I think. Absolutely. Um, for those listening who don't know what a sound designer is, can you break it down for us? It's kind of, I mean, it can be different things and and people use it in all different ways. The way I use it is for world building and and literally like the designing of sounds, Uh you know. 
things that sonically embody ideas and the stories that we tell. And that can be lots of things. It can be individual sounds. It can also be ambiences. So, which Uh is what I mean when I say world building. Yeah. uh, that's how I think of it. You yeah. Know, people use it in different ways, but for me, that's, you know, that's how I approach it. So in the larger sound department at Game of Thrones, um, as you apply this world building technique, what is your particular specific role in the whole process? My role is kind of as resides in sort of the fantastical, you know, so the kind of crazy elements, uh, the dragons, of course, the White Walkers, Whites, um, there have been dreams um, that I've done. Um, the Warging I designed, so it's an element that goes in. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, just, just, just all that kind of crazy stuff, the walls falling, those kinds of things. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of kind of fantastical elements to the show. Yeah. And uh, so that's my... That's your area of expertise. So if people are familiar with the sound of a shriek of a dragon or the scream of the undead, something like that, that's that's all you. That's Mm -hmm. Paula Fairfield. That's my my jam. (laughs) That's your expertise. (laughs) Um, And... um, so you mentioned you mentioned a lot of ice based objects. Do you do the fire? You do dragon fire? Do you do all fire? Do you do the wildfire? No, I didn't do the wildfire. Okay. So I do kind of the way we break it or break up the work mm-hmm. um, because it crosses and touches each other. You know the different kind of sections. Um, I do kind of all things dragon and things that dragons touch. Okay. Um, with regard to the White Walkers. The icy bits, the weather, um, and not the necessarily ambiences because Brad Katona does that. He does okay. that and all the effects. But I, I do kind of the the crazy stuff when it starts to churn up and and that kind of thing. Um, and um, yeah, you know, kind of. And then the wall like falling last year, I mm-hmm. took that, which was super fun. Yeah, I mean, it's just a. It's another character, you know. It's another kind of creature in a way that, and that's how I approached it. And I, it was it it just was a bit of a change, but a lot of fun to do. So you mentioned like pick that up. Um, you came on the show season three, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and how when you get um, when you get a script or you get the story or what do you get, and then you decide. I'll handle this noise, you handle that noise. How does that break it down process work? Um, well, I don't... I mean, honestly, with this show, um, I mean, with anything, you know, I this script for me, you know, if and when I look at it, comes later. I only get to look at this show once, like a viewer. Mm. And rough as it is, I get to experience the story unfold and listen to my own emotions of how I'm reacting to it. And uh, it's the only time, the first time. After that, you know, I'm crawling frame by frame by frame by frame by (laughs) frame. You know, and after a while, you know, I've noticed, like, it's funny, I forget after a while... I'm so focused on the parts that I'm thinking about and 
the adding as part of my contribution to the show, yeah. I forget what's going on in the story. Right, you're too and close it, to it. It's no, it's crazy. And like when they start, you know, playing trailers, everyone goes crazy over a certain thing that's happening. And I'm like analyzing for sight lines and stuff. And I'm not even, I forget what the meaning of the thing is because that's how bur- how far we burrow yeah, into how, it. Yeah, how you know? granular it gets. And you forget yeah. that stuff. It's crazy. I mean, only tell you know months later can i look at it and go oh my god you know and 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 kind of appreciate it that way but that's why i say it's like the first time and usually we get um if not all the episodes a bunch of the episodes so we kind of get the arc um for me it's the arc of the show you know like if i'm thinking about the dragons what are the dragons doing you know what's the craziest craziest scene in the season Right, and that's, that's what you one want of my to things do. because I have to have thought about enough material that I don't design myself into a corner, and I know the range from zero to a hundred. What, yeah. what the ends are that mm-hmm. I have to sort of think about when I'm thinking about it because there's you know kind of different arcs going on, and uh, so the ha- being able to see it doesn't happen on most shows, but in this case it does because of how it's shot and everything. Being able to see it and kind of get a general sense of what they're doing, what they're thinking about, you know. Like, I remember for season seven, I got all the shows, to uh, all the episodes together. And, I mean, I almost, like, passed out when I saw it. <laughs> and it was a very early animatic of the ice dragon blowing blue fire. Mm-hmm. And I thought, <laughs> I mean, I, but I, I, you know, I knew... Kind of, it was so rough, I didn't get the full extent of it, you yeah. know? But I, I knew that that was a thing, and I, it started me thinking the process. And the longer I have to allow it to roll around, and, you know, I go through moments of absolute panic, and I'm, you know, looking for things and thinking for things. But that's when you find all the good stuff, you know, you start kind of... Uh, you know, I always want to find special things for stuff, you know, really yeah. kind of interesting stuff. And I do a lot of research and do think about weird things. But the longer I have to do that and rumble around um, looking and thinking about ideas, the better, you know. So it's cool to get so much of it, uh, such a glimpse of it and a kind of an idea of what the what the piece is for the, yeah. you know, what, what, you know. Let's take, I've, I've heard you speak a couple times, so I know these stories, but people listening may not. Can we talk about, since you came on season three to now season eight, the evolution of the dragon noise, what has gone into that sound library, what sounds would people be able to identify when did you grow it? How did you grow it over the years? They went from like teens, basically, when you got They're them. Toddlers. Right? Toddlers kind of, almost. Yeah. Season three, yeah, yeah, to, to these, you know, big, big, beautiful beasts. You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, I don't know that anyone anticipated that this would have this odd element to it where you've got... Um, these creatures that transform and grow up uh-huh. in our homes with us in our, you know, this Game of Thrones world. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it became apparent to me kind of between four and five how special it was. And so I didn't plan ahead that far initially. But I wanted to... 
I, I could see how emotive they were. Mm-hmm. And that there was sort of these range of emotions that they were summing up. They were so integral to the story. I mean, think of the plaza scene, I'm thinking in particular. And in my own personal... Like when Daenerys gets rescued in the middle of the plaza scene? which scene? The plaza scene when it looks like she's giving him away. Oh, away. yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is in uh, episode four. Mm-hmm. And the full range of emotion from happy, you know too sad mommy where are you going to listening to her be dissed by um the bald dude Mm -hmm. to venging mommy um it had everything and for me in my own personal life i was in a place where i needed that 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 so part of it was understanding that the emotion was part of the story and part of it was me needing to express myself and not knowing how because I just had lived through the deaths of three of my family members my sister had only started like passed a couple of weeks earlier and I found myself when I came home and I didn't see anybody for about a month and I my job I was started that scene and I realized at some point the poetic beauty of the fact that my job then Mm -hmm. was to play with dragons. In this moment when I was so crushed, and and I was actually at that point still very numb, I I couldn't. So I needed, so I was very numb, but I was inside breaking, and I needed a place to put all this stuff, and here was the scene that had Mm -hmm. everything, everything in it. And... And so began my track for sounds of emotion, and I started to realize that in the past I had used, uh, when I did Predators, I used, and I had done this many times, used a base of human sound that would give a shape that I wanted and then attached uh, animal-based sounds to them, manipulated them, and then blended them. So that was sort of the way I approached that. And I'd thought about it, but I had realized that, and maybe I had become more cynical as years passed, that it's very hard for us humans to emote freely. You know, we hide things. We we close our own voice. We change it and, and, and hold things back. But when animals emote or make a sound, it mm-hmm. is pure. They don't have an agenda. They don't have, like, they're not worried what someone else is going to judge them or their voice or how they look. You know, yeah. it's pure. And that, you know, I started to think about these things and then started listening because I had set before me a job to create this emotional kind of palette and started looking for sounds that could do that. And that led, you know, and then, you know, so that's kind of the beginnings of that. And it ended up being, I mean, you know, I never want, you know, part of my thing, I've been asked before, you know, could you play that sound and point out the sounds that are in it? And the thing is, is that, my absolute thing is that you never hear the sounds that are in it. That's the point. The sure. point is is that they're now blended 
so much that they now are you believe they this creature makes this sound and you're not thinking about all the elements that are in it. So that was my task was like could I do that? Yeah. And it you know it's been a long process of learning and experimenting and what works. Sometimes I felt I've been better at it than others. Um it's been a process and the interesting thing is then with the added kind of thing of having to grow these creatures over time, yet maintain their personalities somehow, uh, has been, well, and Drogons in particular, obviously, because the other two who I nicknamed Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> you know, the kind of goofy bros, uh-huh. and, then, um, and then Drogon, who obviously more powerful, manly, you know, got his lady, um, that kind of deal. So he, you know, is like the big brother to the idiots. Um, and that was the story I told myself. So that allowed me, assigned kind of certain ideas to, you know, to inform the palette that I chose. But Drogon, as I've talked about in interviews, like my story of Drogon is he's the reincarnation of Cal Drogo, mm-hmm. her hot husband from season yeah. one, right? And so that that relationship I always have in mind when choosing Drogon's palette. Now, that wasn't initially that's not where I started Mm -hmm. but I started to grow into that when I realized I had to somehow shift palettes and then shift them as they grew Um, and so you know these ideas that I have about the dragons have really evolved and grown up over time with the dragons yeah and you can only get away with pitching stuff down so much before things fall apart. So, you know, I could pitch a little from season to season, but I always had to find other sounds. The cool thing the is bottom. when you pitch them down, yeah, they start to take on other, you hear other elements of the sound. And so then they start to blend in where you can round them out with lower sounds. And But then, you know, there's always a danger as you, you know, people tend to pitch everything down, but then... You know, I also, on top of all of this, have to deal with competing with Ramin's music, who I love. <laughs> I love you, Ramin. I love <laughs> everything you do. And I'm sure Ramin has the same feeling. You know, it, it's, it's, I say it's the ultimate battle of fire and ice because we <laughs> occupy the same territory. Right. We both are doing our best to help tell the story. And I have to be very cognizant of. Uh, giving Matt a number of frequencies to play with so that we can penetrate Ramin's growing wall of music that's so gorgeous and yet so difficult. And the thing is, if I don't think of that, things disappear. And things do disappear anyway, but it's like, I want to keep kind of the viscerality going as much. Mm-hmm. So you keep that experience, and you keep having that, and it's like a part of the story. But, you know, Ramin and I have to, well, and all the other sound that's going in, right, we all have to kind of compete for that space. And, you know, Matt and Anna Lee Blank, who's the other mixer that works with Matt Waters, they have this, like, insane task of having to, you know, mold all this and find place in the sonic realm mm-hmm. for everything to live, and so that we get the best experience of the story. You know that that Dan and David are trying to tell. So it's yeah. like this very complex thing. I mean, this is the way all you know shows are covered. But in our case, you know, we've got these kind of extra elements that are really important to the story that have to poke through, and so it's just this constant 
you know, shaping and stuff. So in terms of animals that I've chosen, I mean, certainly at the beginning, the palette was smaller things. And, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. There's um, a couple of larger kinds of birds. There's dolphins. There's, um, uh, oh, my God, there's seals. There's all kinds of things. I mean, there's lots of things, and there's little... And there's just little bits of things. And, and, and when I choose a sound that I like, I'm really careful about snipping off the parts that give it away as to what the source is. Because sure. I don't want you to go, did I just hear a pig? You know, <laughs> because there are, it's really interesting when you start to go in and you play with stuff. There are telltale things that is absolutely, that's a goose. That's a, there's something about it. And so if you, you've got, like, I'm really careful about choosing the parts and getting rid and shaping them so mm-hmm. you don't know where they started, you know? Yeah. And then I'll process certain things. I'll layer stuff up and process certain things. You know, I use uh, tremolo a lot. I use clip gain and do weird things to kind of um, create holes and spaces for things to come through and play with frequency. So there's all kinds of stuff to kind of shape this creature and I think also about the physicality all the time so in the case of the dragon all the things those nasty yellow teeth and the lips and the drool and the nostrils but also the other really important thing to the dragons are their body yeah like those fins on the back right the fins the thorns now as they got bigger the the skin and the way it moves and then the wings which of themselves as seasons passed became a little engineering thing of their own. And this season, I did kind of a 2.0 of last season's design, which changed because they got so much bigger. And uh, I really am happy with where they're at. They're like Because the physicality of them says so much more. And people get really hung up on the vocals and forget that, you know, they move and all these other parts. And it's, it's to give the kind of whole sense of their beings uh you want to feel them as much as you can and that you know so it's like a lot of different stuff so it's breaking all these things down into little pieces and then finding the emotion stuff that tweaks us you know that that pulls your heartstring a little or you know yeah and so you get to give kind of this performance for these three integral characters at minimum not Mm -hmm. to mention these other things um i'm thinking of um the episode, the scene where Daenerys goes and approaches Drogon and Viserion and Rhaegal are behind him at Dragonstone right before they go fly north of the Wall. Mm-hmm. And this is the last time that, like, Viser- the family's all together, right? Because Viserion doesn't come back mm-hmm. from beyond the Wall. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment where, like, the two brothers, Beavis and Butthead, as you called them, are sort of, like, snapping and hissing at each other. And mm-hmm. this very, like, it seems almost intentional. Like, any time a show sort of draws attention to a character and why you love them, like, especially Game of Thrones, you should get worried that they're going to die, you know? So there's this, like, really cute brotherly moment. Is that something that, um, how does that come together? Is that in the script? Is that, do you get notes? I look at it, and the thing is, in my quest to bring you as a viewer for my contribution to the threshold of believability it's all about the detail Mm -hmm. it is that for all of us that is what game of thrones is all about it's a delicious meal with so many strands and flavors and taste right and it's all about 
its viscerality, both visually and sonically, so that you feel that you're part of it. Yeah. And also, it's about, like, the um, dragons, you know, you want to feel like you can almost touch them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's all about the detail and the illusion of that. So I scour them for a sound opportunities and whenever and I watch the scene and I've developed these kind of funny ideas about them in my mind we've never all talked about these things but when I watch them and I see what Joe and Steve have conjured for them and there is in the visual effects in the visual yeah. effects I then pick up on that and try and push it as far as I can. So if I, like in that scene, I saw them and you hear one of them burp at one point and stuff and this like, like bros would do, yeah. you know, two 15 year old brothers, <laughs> you know, it's like burping and farting in the morning and laughing about it or whatever. So that's kind of like watching them. And that's when I watched it, I kind of got that idea. I never talked to them about that or asked them if that's what they meant. And if the scene doesn't play right, for Dan and David, they would be the first to say, you know, I think we need something different there. And sometimes I, sometimes I misinterpret it, or I think it, you know, I, I shove it in this way when it should be this way, and it's fine. They'll say, yeah, no, we want something a little more this or that. Mm -hmm. So I'll go back and relook at it and go, ah, okay, I get it. And I see the direction they're going with it emotionally, you know, and they're, you know, the kind of play. What kind of emotion might they attribute to a dragon? Would they say, um, what kind of descriptive, more. What? It depends on what the scene is. Sure. You know? like, like, in that case, they might say, you know, more playful or something. Mm. I mean, that wasn't a note that I got because I picked up on that. Because you nailed it. What they were... <laughs> I nailed it. I was doing my job. No, I, I could see because... Because actually, because visual effects did their job, and by the time I saw that scene, it was well-developed. Yeah. Um, but I've had scenes, you know, where it's like, oh, we want... Drogon to be more vicious than mm. less like you know it's like I've had that like more intense or you know something I don't know it's it's it depends or sometimes it's frequency I'll need uh, Matt will need some changes or something sure. adjusted because musically it's not passing through and and it's like it's always about you know I try to give him as much as like low stuff. You know, obviously for the physicality, but lots of the the really emotive stuff is in the kind of mid and upper ranges. Uh -huh. You know, and uh, and it's always interesting when a creature of that size reaches and the pitch is very high. The, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like a big dog who Howling. screams yeah. if you know he goes something happens or he gets hit by something or whatever oh, you know yeah, what yeah. i mean mm -hmm. you know what i mean because you don't so it's it, it's even more emotive you know it's better you choose your moments to use stuff in it one extreme or another but it's fun to play with the range of it and see but yeah i mean occasionally i'll kind of see it slightly different or i'll have seen the sequence earlier and they hadn't mm -hmm. added something or they've you know they'll change the mouth sometimes mm -hmm. and do different things you know it depends i mean uh so given your interpretation of drogon uh and given that he had this like uh, m momentous meeting with John last season, mm -hmm. what was your sense of what Drogon, the reincarnated Caldrogo, was thinking when he met John last season? Well, in my mind, in your mind, <laughs> <laughs> my story 
don't know if I can say this. <laughs> my story that I told myself is that he was like being dominant. It was like, I can piss way farther than you. <laughs> that was one. And the other thing is, you know, he was kind of nice to him. It's like, I know you, maybe you're fam. Maybe. That was sort of an implication of that. He recognized him. But oh, a little Targaryen, maybe. Yeah. But I did my comment in my mind that he said as before he flew away was, but remember, bro, she only rides me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, okay. in my mind, it was like, now in my mind, it was like setting that up. But, you know, it can be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was skeptical and all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I like to tell myself super silly stories. And usually deeper into the season, I'm pretty punchy, so some of the stories get pretty silly. <laughs> but the the arc is right. I mean, it's yeah. like that's that's essentially it's like telling the story. And it was a that scene was a little, you know, I mean, it's questionable as to what you know. A lot of people interpret it in different ways, but that was mine. Yeah, I was curious if you if there was a sort of like. Um, it felt to me like the, the Targaryen dragon recognized dragon aside, um, is sort of the, um, I'm letting you touch me. Exactly. (laughs) You're here because I'm allowing you to be here. He comes terror charging at him. It's like, remember. Yeah. And then, yeah, he kind of does, but then it was like also with like, but remember, okay, that's fine. However. Yeah. 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 Don't forget who's. Who's the dude, you know? Um, so, yeah. yeah, it was a fun... And I love that scene. There was a beauty to... I mean, there was a moment that I played super sucky from Drogon because though he wanted to be mad at John for, you know, something going on with his lady, um, he loved that. He recognized him. And there's, so there's a moment when you see this eye. And, and it was like a, like a almost like a sadness, too, because... John could do things with Danny that Drogon could never do. I don't <laughs> no, I I had a whole thing going. <laughs> but it, you know, it it like kind of like played with the sort of emotion of the scene, which is fun. And, yeah, you know, it's all about kind of choosing the sounds that will kind of pull you in. And yeah, it's loose to for everyone to kind of be able to roam around in the ideas, and you know, all all of them are probably true. Um, and then, can you talk a little bit about, um, I know we talked about this for, for print when it happened, but can you uh, talk to me a little bit about how you then go from creating a dragon, whatever a dragon sounds like from scratch, whatever three distinct dragons sound like from scratch, right? Mm-hmm. Now make one undead. How did you do that last season? What what did you... It, well, it was scary, and so there's a couple of elements with it. So there's the physicality of it, which was an interesting thing to play with. And uh, essentially, um, wing-wise and all that, I, I the base was um, the same, but then was processed to have icy things added and have it more cracky and and bony and stuff. The vocals were a super shredded version a little bit of the call. So there's an element. You recognize a slightness so that it's not so far removed that you don't believe 
you've got to keep the thread running. There's an element still left in that, but I shredded it much like I shredded voices for some of the really crazy stuff of the the whites, you know. Um, and because those are all based primarily, there's a, a couple of animal stuff in the whites, but a lot of it is humanoid that has been affected mm-hmm. and, and, and stuff. And then, um, and then the idea, so added to that vocal, the scre- then these are the screeches, like when it passes by and different things, a couple of vocalizations are um, added to that. Okay, so then I thought about physicality. So, um, and this completely defies the laws of any kind of, so I just make them up as I go along. That's uh-huh. super awesome. Um, so in my mind, mm-hmm. um, when you freeze, uh, your vocal cords freeze solid, and so you try to scream, and they clatter together. So you hear that element in the polar bear, and the also zombie polar bear. the zombie polar bear, and also in... Because, um, see, the other thing is these all have to reside. The whites... And the polar bear, they threw that one in out of nowhere. <laughs> and the um, <laughs> they were wanting to do that zombie polar bear for a long time. They didn't give you any heads up that it was coming. No, <laughs> no, they did not. And then the and then the dragons. So the um, so they, you know, you have to maintain an element that. But I had this idea that this rattle, you yeah. know, and then the blue fire. Yeah, so the blue fire. You know, I had to prepare. I mean, the, you know, I did start to learn to think ahead um, after the first couple of seasons and realized what well, was, oh, I see, what, you know, this is just going to get bigger and the dragons are going to get bigger and I have to think ahead. And when the uh, season ends with Viserion, I had to imagine what could possibly happen in season eight. So in my wildest dreams, there was a possibility of. Uh, uh, you know, a, an undead dragon and a real dragon meeting. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, obviously they have to sound different. Their physicality has to be different, but their and their fires should be different. I mean, you've got the blue fire and you've got this flamey fire, and it's like, what could that be? You know, and because you would want to be able to differentiate between them, and how right. could you do that? If they were, like, fight in the sky or something like that, have a dance of dragons, say, or something like that, you would need to be able to distinguish. Or even, whatever, Even yeah. with the blue and the red or whatever, just, you just you need... Don't even... You need to not... Yeah. You need to not be thinking about that. Yeah. If you've done your job right, yeah. we know what the blue fire you sounds like. It. Yeah. You accept it. You accept it and know what it is. Yeah. And not, you go, oh, I know what that is, or yeah. whatever. So, and that one is... One isn't going to get lost from the other. So I uh, I started thinking about kind of crazy. And usually when I've got something really wacky, I try to think of the craziest thing I can think of first. Cause, and then reel myself back. And then they reel me back more to reality. Okay. Thank God. Um, <laughs> it's great that there's a job for me. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I started to think about stuff. And there's a shot... And it was still really basic, but they had the shot of the army standing there. You know, silent, the mouse, the yeah. frozen mouse. I really wish people listening could have seen the zombie face you just made. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were their little zombie frozen faces. Uh-huh. And then, you know, and blue light on them while the dragon is up there blowing the Going shit out of town. the wall, yeah. right? And... 
Like, what if the dragon was being the conduit for all the army of undead and screaming from this tortured souls? Like, the blue fire was made of the screams of the tortured souls, of the, you know, the lost souls of the undead army. And that's where that idea started. And I, I thought of it early on when I saw the kind of, and I remember, you know, emailing to David and Greg and said, is this too nuts? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you think about this? And I'm sure they like looked at each other and went, oh boy. <laughs> but they were well. like, sure, as they do, allow me to try it. You know, I just wanted to make sure that this wasn't like, that they were willing to peruse something kind of really kind of nutty. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I want it to be highly organic. So, and that's really hard in that frequency range. A lot of stuff that doesn't, it's too electronic or something. It was, had to be, it had to have some, I don't know, it had to have something unusual about it. And so I started looking and I tum- stumbled upon. Um, and this whole thing of uh, singing courts, which is used for transformative practice for shamanistic stuff. Singing courts. Singing courts. Yeah. They, um, they use it in healing uh-huh. to transcend. And what it is are these quartz wands that when you rub them or you clank them together, they actually ring off at a oh. very high frequency. And it is said... They come from these special places in South America, these special caves, and it's said that the tone that they emit is in, is a harmonic of the common sound of the earth, which is home. And when I read that, I said, God damn it. <laughs> because there's something, I've had this whole thing my whole career about uh, the kind of concept of I only use organic stuff, naturally occurring sounds in my work, and it's like um, the idea that it will carry, you know, that's why the screams, that even though I manipulated them and did all this stuff with them, yeah. they carry the essence, the primality of that sound with yeah. them, no matter what you do with them. And so this felt very weighty to me, even though you don't know anything about it. And I recorded some of the elements, and it's what's crazy about it is this stuff. You, if you watch, like on YouTube with your laptop, you can hear the high-pitched stuff in the blue fire, even on the shittiest of speakers. <laughs> it's magnificent, but there's something about it. Like, you don't know what it is, but it's like, I and mean, it's my attempt to kind of, through my philosophy that things are carried, the essences of sounds are carried with them, that... And it, it's embedded in it, and on a primal level, we respond to it that it's my attempt at mythology. Yeah. You know, in the same way that I had these ideas about whether and that, uh, you know, rather than speaking that uh, White Walkers um, command the forces of nature. That's my idea for choosing sounds. That's what I think of when I'm finding sounds when they're so powerful. It feels like they're going to crack the earth open. Or, they can whip these tornadoes up or whatever they're doing, you know, on their arrival at Hardhome. I mean, it's like you think the freaking mountains are going to split open, right? Yeah. And that's them commanding the forces. They're beyond language. So it's like that power mythology. You feel a mythology. There's an ancient 
power in that, and and I was trying to find something that happened yeah. in the blue fire, and I felt very good about it. I, d- I don't know. I mean, I, I I thought it was a kind of cool element, and it I did what it it. Yeah. it did what it needed to do. It needed to compete with the falling of the wall. It needed to compete with the music. It needed to translate this idea of the shrieking that and the coldest of cold sounds iciness that is so cold that it's hot and then it melts this wall with yeah. like all this stuff yeah well there's also in um in season seven there's also i think we get like the first real scream from a white mm-hmm. one of you know when they like they're holding pinning down one of those um falling apart whites and it screams loud enough like through the canyons and whatever that it's i don't know sire can hear it or something like that um you know, th- that's not something that we've seen on the show before, I think. That's mm-hmm. true. So where where did that come from? What were you trying to convey with that? What happens when they're like, okay, now the, the now we need a white scream, and we haven't had one before. Do you know? Like the kind of idea, because it's connected with the White Walkers, like remember at Hard Home when John fights, or and when Simon kills him, that kind of like, like oh yeah, it, it explodes into ice, to shards, to powder. Yeah, and gone. Yeah, the vocal is the, the equivalent of that. Okay. So the dead, the soul, the shredding, to to nothing. Yeah. And finding some sonic equivalent, but that also just and that but it's the shriek also. There's a horror to it. Yeah. So that was kind of what I was trying for. Yeah. And then when you have something like the Night King, which is this huge antagonist of the series, but this is not a character who speaks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as much as the various actors who have played that part have given a good silent performance, it's not a silent performance. Mm -hmm. So what sort of sounds do you put? Well, that's that's where I was talking about. Like the Night King in particular, his announcement is usually with that cracking of the earth, him and his yeah. White Walker bros, right? Yeah. His posse. Yeah. And do you that, do stuff like the jingling of I feel like his armor jingles a bit when he walks. No, it's ice cracking. Oh it's ice cracking. So it's ice cracking. And the only jingle you'll hear are the chains on the horses. Mm. Um but it's so yeah, so in season three when I had to deal with the White Walkers and we we're trying to deal with like do we use language like mm-hmm. David Peterson has created scrawl language. Yeah. And you know crackling we tr- ice, I we think. We tried it. Yeah. yeah, and it just didn't um it didn't work. It didn't yeah. work because it, it just seemed weird that they talked at all. And so it's like what else can we do? And and then I had this con that's just sonically this thought, oh, and trying to come up with something that's really interesting sonically, but makes sense story-wise, and, and that you can almost believe might be happening. That's always my kind of, like, the three, the big three things yeah. that I choose sounds on. So in this case, he's walking through the forest towards Samuel's little cottage there. Yeah. And I thought, oh, what if, like, Mr. Frazy froze everything in his path? That's where the beginnings of the commanding of the forces of nature for me started. And Mm -hmm. that's like that again, it's like just kind of finding a story that gives me kind of room to pick because it's like you can pick a million sounds. I mean, there's a million sounds to go through. It's like, where do you start? Yeah. And for me, I've got to kind of start with a story of some sort. I'm not, 
I'm not from the school of throw sounds against the wall and see what's cool. It just doesn't... I can't do that. I have tried. It is frustrating. I don't. And I don't enjoy it. I need the, the meatiness of the story. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and it engages me. Otherwise, I get super bored. <laughs> so it, it's partially for me and my weird brain. But so for that, that was a cool idea. I mean... That concept to attach to that character starts to give you an interesting bread. So it just was there. And then I believe, is it in four? We have the whites pop up out of the snow. So that was something new. I mean, mm-hmm. there we see the zombies for the first time. Mm-hmm. And there, so they have to be similar, but you know, there's like. Like the skeletal ones that attack Jojen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's so the beginnings of those. Yeah. Guys, right? And then. And then we have Hard Home, and John, you know, kills that dude, and they all, but they all show up, and every, you know, all yeah. these things happen. That whole thing, which was insane. And you have the swarming, and you have all these things in the beginnings of this kind of crazy ass thing. So they're, you know, it's like, and, and for me, I also go for the viscerality a lot of the mm-hmm. time. Like, what's going to make your skin crawl? Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that, or what's going to be. You know, like their vocals. It's like, oh my god, that's horrible. Yeah, it's like, what is the hor- most horrible shrieking sound I can think of? I, I wanted to ask you, we were talking also before we started recording about um, Jurassic Park and the sounds that went into making those dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, and you and I both had like watched or read the same documentary yeah. thing about yeah. how they did that. But, you know, that sound work was so iconic that that trumpeting sound of, like, the T-Rex roar and stuff like that, which is so distinctive, like, mm-hmm. I think we can all kind of hear it in our heads as mm-hmm. they say that. But, like, that's what a T-Rex sounds like to me now. I think that the work you've done on Game of Thrones is, like, has... This is what a dragon sounds like. I think mm-hmm. for a whole generation of people, they're going to be like, it sound, that's what a dragon sounds like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What does that feel like for that's you? That's crazy. But I will say that article inspired me you know, as we were talking before, because I remember reading that and it was this moment, because I'm self-taught, I never went to film school, um, there really wasn't that where I was going to school and I've gone to art school and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't have, so I didn't have any of that insight. I come from Canada, you know, I'm away from kind of the scenes. I never had someone show me things like that you didn't have to find one sound to do everything. Yeah. The concept of taking... I remember reading that article about four times because I was like, wait, what? And kind of processing what I read when they said there were, like, I don't know, you know, 20 sounds or whatever it was. Which felt huge at the time, and you're like, ha, come talk to me about the sounds of my dragon. (laughs) But, but, oh, but given, though, but that's one, a film, I've had the opportunity to transform this over all these years. Very, very different. And I, I, it was, you know, absolutely for me an aha moment when I read that article because I, I was suddenly freed of the concept of having to find one thing and pitch it and make it into this thing. It's like, no. The art is in taking many things and creating this new thing with it. That singular thing, along with the fly, that, you know, <laughs> I, I had said to Joanna earlier that 
The Fly, I loved The Fly, but and I remember going to see like a midnight screening the second it came out. I was so excited. Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis. Oh my god, sexy and, science time. But there was this this shootout in the lab. Yeah, thing, and I was absolutely blown away by the sound of the bullet case and in this crazy chaos. You could hear the beautiful detail. It, it just, I just went, oh my God, like a light went on. Yeah. I don't know if this is an insulting question, but like, are, are, were there other fictional dragons that you went and checked out what they sounded like, like Rain of Fire or, or no, Smog? No, I, I or had like seen that? stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think these dragons, when I got them, like most dragons are really big. Yeah. Right? They're and full got, grown. And, and you I got, got them little, little toddlers, so I couldn't really. <laughs> You know, it's funny because had I gotten them big first, maybe I would have done something different. But having had them as small, yeah, those didn't really work well. And That's they knew, funny. you know, Dan and David and those guys knew what they didn't want to hear, but they didn't, you know, they they opened it up and wanted me to explore, and so and so began the journey, you know. But yeah, I didn't. There weren't really any role models to look to. Really, just you know, Drogon, you know, is my is my. I love him. Um, (laughs) thank you Paul Fairfield so much my pleasure alright I hope I hope you you made it through uh, without crying yourself into dehydration this has been our discussion of season 6 episode 5 the door we will be back to talk we're gonna leap into season 7 oh my god we're almost done we're gonna leap over to season 7 episode 4 the spoils of war um where a big old dragon shows up to do some damage uh in the meantime, Richard, where can people find you? Oh God, I'm going to be in the rush line because um, the the Bravos players are doing like their kind of version of Hamilton. So, I, and I heard it's really good. So, I'm going to be waiting in, in there. So, if anyone's there, just come say hi, uh, and I'll be tweeting f- from my account at Rylaws and uh, writing for BF.com. Joanna, where will you be? Uh, you can also find me on BF.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Joe Ruthless. But mostly, I will just be holding the door. Hodor. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on the Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to the Run Through Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>